Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. So good to have you with us, everybody. Appreciate you tuning in. This is an important podcast. Each and every one of ours we'd like to think is important, but this one is definitely one of the more important podcasts as we're going to be talking in the Hot Topics segment about the most recent or the recent ruling of the U.S. Appeals Court where they deemed the CFPB, quote, unconstitutional. That's the one reoccurring word that appeared in all the headlines. And talking about that, we have as our Hot Topic special guest, Mitch Kider. Good to have Mitch back. He's the chairman, managing partner of Wiener Brodsky and Kider, and uh, he has been the attorney that has been representing PHH in the lawsuit, in the case where PHH Corp pushed back and filed a suit against CFPB. And the ruling came back favorable. So we're going to be talking about that in the Hot Topics segment. Very excited about this podcast. And the audience that, it's, or the, the audience that we're getting a chance to share this with is huge. And the opportunity to share this information with all of you. So anyway, this podcast, again, is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, although we do have an increasing larger audience beyond our mortgage professional world. But it's for mortgage professionals, and we're the proud recipient of the Progress in Lending Innovation Award. Very grateful for that. I want to say a special thank you to our... Our, our sponsors, ArchMI, the creator of the new innovative race star program, Motivity Solutions, their lead with their leading business technology, providing real-time reporting and dashboard scorecards, Velma, the virtual electronic marketing assistant, which helps you build stronger, more profitable relationships through the set-it-and-forget-it auto email campaigns, or you can do the custom fly uh, campaigns on the fly. Go to Velma.com. Or call Brent Embler at 208-854-7909-7909. Brent Embler, great guy. In fact, we were going to have him as the guest. We bumped him to get Mitch on here. So appreciate you, Brent, for working with us on that. He didn't have any problem with it. He said, oh, my gosh, stay out of this. This is an important topic, so it's glad to do it. So we also have Simplify. I'll say thank you to Nancy Alley and the team there who provide settlement a collaborative uh, relationship, electronic collaborative relationship between settlement agents and yourselves as lenders in a real-time chat and messaging format allows you to track changes, send and receive validate documents, as well as obtain status reports and updates on what's going on in a real-time electronic format, and it's an audible trail. So when you get called in or have any issues with any regulators, uh, maybe a little less so with this uh, latest ruling. We'll find out later in the Hot Topics segment. But if whatever issues you have with state regulators, anyone looking at your process, you do have electronic communication trail to begin to give you a defensible position. Again, check out Simplifile.com, S-I-M-P-L-I-F-I-L-E, or .com, or call Nancy Alley and her team at 1-800-460-5657, dh D plus H, A, D, and H, which is we how we refer to them as, is the technology pr- provider we're very pleased to have a partnership with. They have 140 years of history, over 5,500 employees in 70 countries, serving 8,000 clients. 
you know, their latest mortgage bot um, mobile app is um, it's a mobile application. It is actually designed to be mobile friendly. Very interesting and intriguing the way they're going about the uh, competitor or competing or providing uh, banks, credit unions, and independent mortgage bankers with the ability to compete with a Rocket Mortgage app. Very innovative. I encourage you to check it out at DH. That's it. Two letters, DH.com. Or call them at one 800 815-5592. And finally, the Mortgage Collaborative. The past five presidents of the NBA formed the Mortgage Collaborative, and they created it so that we could have get together twice a year and really form meaningful relationships in a much more intimate setting. It really allows you to get to know people. As you know, this is a relationship-driven business. Often who you know is as important as what you know. And the Mortgage Collaborative allows you to do that. I encourage you to get a hold of Rich Zerbinski at 440-552-0691, the power of the network. Look forward to seeing you at one of those events. And they're going to have a reception in, uh, I should tell you, they're going to have a reception for everyone to attend there in Boston. The conferences are coming up. The annual NBA conference. We had a great recording by David Stevens uh, that somehow got dropped out of here, and I'm looking for it. So, David, if you're listening, apologies, my apologies for not uh, getting that up here today and playing that. But we have the annual conference starting this coming Sunday, August, October 23rd through the 26th in Boston at the Heinz Convention Center. This conference is sold. I don't know if it's sold out. You can still get registered, but it's one of the best attended conferences ever. And it's going to be very exciting. I want to, they have James Taylor there for entertainment. That's they got some great entertainment value, but it's really the business connections and who's talking, especially with the latest ruling. You can only imagine what is going to be talked about at this conference. You have got to be there. If you're not registered, do so. You may be staying down in New York. <laughs> Hotel rooms are just booked out everywhere. People have been booking this uh, conference, and so it's going to be difficult. Check Airbnb. That's one thing I did, and that's how I got my reservation. I got a great place close to the conference center, so use Air. B&B if you cannot get a hotel room close to by. Also, we have the Americanalyst Fast Forward event at the Omni Creek, Barton Creek. I'll be there doing a podcast from there. Very interesting uh, event, and I encourage you to check it out. In fact, get a hold of me. I'll email you a discount for our AOL listeners. Excuse me, AOL. LOL, Lickin' on Lending listeners. We have a discount invitation that Tony Moss has extended to all of our listeners. Then November 10th, we have the Whole Loan Trading Shop, and then November 15th through the 17th is the Accounting and Finance Band Management. I'll be doing a podcast from the uh, there at the Alight um, event that is their hand sponsoring just beforehand. So very excited, lots going on in the industry. And without further ado, let's get over to Joe Fart. Let's Hi, find out what's going on with the markets. I'm really interested in your comments about what Janet Yellen said on Friday and how that. Yeah. Happened. So let's start off by talking. Let's start off yeah, well, by talking today about today. The the negative reaction from uh, what. She said on Friday, reversed a little bit today. The MBS prices are up three thirty seconds, and uh, not yeah. due to you know economic data. Although it was weak, there was very little reaction to the economic data. Uh, a couple things came out this morning. One was industrial production came out, and it rose a little less than what was expected. Uh, a bigger miss on the Empire State Index, but it's a, a, a you know a less significant measure. It, it showed sector contraction in September as opposed to uh, a small expansion as was expected. So um, uh, last week we'll talk about what did not move the market first because it's kind of it's it's there's not much there. So the economic data that well the starting with the minutes of the September 17th Fed meeting came out. Very few surprises. Very little additional information in those minutes, and therefore not a lot of movement in the market as a reaction to them. 
the economic data that came out, the biggest event was retail sales. It rose uh, uh, it rose from August, which was a pretty weak number, but it matched expectations, so it too caused a little reaction. But what did cause a reaction was, as you mentioned, uh, comments from uh, Janet Yellen's speech Friday uh, afternoon. Yeah. You know, it kind of caught people off guard. It was a speech that wasn't, uh, you know, the the intent uh, wasn't to, you know, talk about monetary policy, but she did. And uh, what she described was a need to consider a little change to their monetary policy, and uh, you know, just to uh, a need to consider it, right? So, uh, right now. Uh, in, in reaction to that, investors, especially long, long-term fixed-rate investors, really did not like to hear what they what she had to say because what she was uh, saying that needed to be considered was that uh, more stimulation in the economy was necessary, and and maybe that the economy needed to run hot for an extended time, and uh, and that she felt like may be necessary in order to get the lasting benefits of the stimulus in the form of increased business investments, better jobs, better wages. And uh, uh, to do that, she, she suggested that maybe they need to raise rates even more slowly than what they had been guiding, meaning all the, the very gradual increases of the Fed funds rate. And to do so even or to do so without much regard for inflation. Uh, she says that maybe it's important that we allow inflation to run a little hotter for a period of time than, than what our target level is. And and so, you know, comments like that, when you're thinking about a long-term fixed-rate investment, uh, uh, that really eats into your returns. And so uh, MBS investors, along with 30 and 15, uh, 10 and, and 30-year treasuries, you know, long-term investments, uh, really uh, reacted in, in a negative way. Uh, prices were driven lower, yields higher. Uh, MBS prices fell about eight thirty seconds or a quarter of a point on the on the news. Ten and thirty year Treasury yields rose significantly. So it was uh, a, a bit of, of a concern, not uh, you know, kind of consistent with what we talked about not too long ago. And in, in the Central Bank of Japan was saying they needed to create a little steeper yield curve. This is what they're talking about. The Fed's what she's talking about. Interesting to note, though, in a speech this morning, Fed Chair Vice Chair Fisher came out saying keeping rates low for too long is dangerous. So who knows where they're going to wind up on all this. But it it, it is causing a lot of uh, investor interest, obviously, and reaction in the marketplace. And so uh, as we uh, get to more speeches, as we get to the next meeting, uh, uh, certainly could cause some uh, uh, market volatility. So, uh, you know, none of that, though, on the schedule, at least not the U.S. Fed this week. There is a central bank, uh, ECBs on the schedule for this week. Their meeting is going to conclude on Thursday, and we expect to hear comments from Mario Draghi uh, after that meeting. Uh, you'll remember early in the month of October, there, was, uh, uh, there were comments from an ECB official talking about taper and the, uh, the way that they will end their their QE program, much like the U.S. did. They they didn't do it all at one time. They didn't extend it continuously. They they slowed down the purchases. Um, and so that's what this official was saying. And the market took that to, to sort of mean, well, maybe there's a, a chance that that might begin soon. And uh, so it would be important to hear what the, the ECB comes up with and what Draghi says at that meeting, after that meeting on Thursday. Uh, and economic data next next week, you know, the two 
big things. Um, CPI comes out tomorrow. Uh, it's expected right. to rise, uh, you know, two tenths. Uh, and existing home sales on Thursday, and it's expected to hold steady at about 5.3 million units annualized. So, uh, sure, we're getting a lot of a lot of information from central banks, and it's having a very significant effect on the market, as opposed to even more so than the economic data right now. Yeah, is the Fed beige book on Wednesday at 2 p.m. when that's released? Is that going to give us any insights, or is that just going to be? No, I don't think so. I mean. Yeah, that's okay. just that's just each Fed official uh, assessing the the strength of the economy in their region, and and uh, you know it's kind of like economic da- really. economic data, which uh, has not been significantly uh, affecting the market. Okay, well, it'll be interesting to see what that comes in looking at, but the comments are going to be really is what's going to be driving the market, and we're certainly getting some mixed signals between Fisher today. Yelling on Friday, and uh, so we're it's going to be a roller coaster and how people survive without having an MBS quote line service. It is the best because it's concise to the point. I'm looking at it, I love the way you have it organized. It's just one place snapshot, got it, and can go ahead and get on with my business. So good job. We're going to have Paul Mollo on in just a minute talking about the latest headlines that he's seeing. I always enjoy getting his report, and we'll be back right back after this brief break. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS Quoteline delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect and know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS Quoteline, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS Quoteline today at MBS mbsquoteline.com mbsquoteline.com 646-716-4972 The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin'. Good to have you back with us, everybody. Excited to have listened to the latest headlines from Paul Malo with the MBS, excuse me, imfnews.com website. Folks, if you're not subscribed to it, you to do so, go to imfnews.com. Paul, appreciate you. I know you've been gone out of the office, so it's good to have you taking a few minutes to dial in and be here with us. So let's run through your headlines here quickly. Okay, listen, uh, all the mega banks are starting to report. I think Friday we had uh, Wells and JPM. Uh, B of A reported this morning. Uh, their originations were flat, which is, you know, interesting in a way. Uh, Wells and um, JPM were up 8 and 11%. Uh, and B of A was flat, and it's interesting because 3Q was wonderful for a lot of lenders. But the story here, and, and we'll get a full picture in a couple of weeks, is that I think the non-banks really hit a home run in the third quarter, and the banks not so much. Uh, they had, you know, some of them had decent quarters, uh, but I think we're going to see some really, really big numbers for some of the non-banks, and, and they're privately held non-banks. I think Quicken's probably going to have phenomenal numbers as well as freedom, and those are just two that come to mind. So uh, the question is, you know, what are we going to see in loan production for the quarter? You know, in the first uh, quarter we had $380 billion. It zoomed up to 510 and 2Q. You know, we're looking, I think, at at least $575 billion for the third quarter, uh, and, uh, you know, maybe wow. even $2 trillion by the time the year ends. We'll see. There's been a lot of estimates and talk about just how good things are, but again, I just stress that it's the non-banks that are having a really good time. Uh, John Bancroft did an, uh, 
review of the MMIF, taking a look. It looks like you know there could be some big numbers there for the MMIF. That's the FHA insurance fund. We talk a little bit in our third story about the um, the PHH CFPB ruling, which obviously Mitch is going to go over. Uh, and some people are waxing poetic about what it means for the structure of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. So uh, it'll be interesting to get Mitch's opinion on that. Story about default servicing. Uh, You know, what's the future default servicing? And it's a good question because with loan production so uh, sweet and uh, quality so amazing, do you you need default servicing anymore? I think you do, but the question is how much you do. Uh, There's a flow. Servicing portfolio, our fifth story, Phoenix Capital's out there with a flow deal that could yield $2.1 billion. Uh, the other thing to watch for the earnings reports on 3Q is what the servicing markups were. Uh, B of A wrote up the servicing a little bit. Uh, we're going to start delving into some of those reports to see what the other guys did. But the general consensus is there was probably some kind of a markup for MSRs in the third quarter, and that will probably help companies like PHH. We'll see. Uh, we went into a little more about Dave Schneider being out at Walt Financial Ditech. That happened late on Friday. Uh, we talked about it a little bit here. I should point out that Tony Renzi became the permanent CEO, you know, about two months ago or less. And then Dave Schneider, who a lot of people in the industry know for his days at uh, Citicorp, I believe, and other shops, yep. uh, he's out. And the question is, you know, is it, it looks like it's a flattening of the management structure. Um, but, you know, when one guy leaves, sometimes more leave, and that will be interesting to keep an eye on uh, yeah. on that situation. Uh, we also talk a little bit more about loan production, what the number is going to be for the third quarter, and uh, that's about it. There's a little piece of gossip about Countrywide. Uh, we heard from a former LO there who worked there uh, in the early part of the decade last year. Uh, I'm sorry, last last time, but he basically said that Fannie Mae wanted to be, I'm sorry, Countrywide wanted to be Countrywide. the next Fann, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There were no details. Yeah. I just throw that out there. I was like, what the hell does that mean? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, listen, Angela Mazzillo ran that shop and found it, uh, obviously, always was looking to do the next big thing. Uh, I don't right. think he wanted to be government GSE, but maybe a private sector secondary market giant. But, can you know, can you pull that off? And, but we'll never know. Well, you remember, Paul, we were le- reading re- headlines back in that last housing cycle where it says, do we really even need the GSEs? And because things, quote-unquote, were so efficient now in the private sector and yeah. so powerful. Uh, boy, boy. <laughs> those yep. headlines got eaten a lot. But So anyway, good <laughs> to have you with us as always. You're just, you do a great job on this website. I encourage people to check it out and get subscribed. IMFnews.com. And I will be posing the question to Mitch. I already got your email, and I've got it queued up. So we're going to be talking about what's the impact of the FHFA, this ruling with FHA, seeing if they have a similar structure. So I'll get that in there and get it back to go back and listen to it. But, Paul, thanks so much for being with us, friend. Really do appreciate it. Sounds good. Have a good week. You bet. That's Ron. Roll over to Alice Alvey. Good to have you with us, Alice. I know we've got a lot. Can't we all can't wait to find out what Mitch has to say. But give us an update on some of the things that are going on in the legislative update. Yes, absolutely. Well, I want to hear what Mitch has to say, too. So I'm going to keep my my segment short and sweet here um, because a couple of them actually will just be questions for Mitch. Excuse me. So we've been tracking this legislative bill, H.R. 5983, the Choice Act bill, which, of course, has to do with the Dodd-Frank overhaul and you know, some of the things as an industry that we wanted, um, it included, that bill incorporated H.R. 2121, which was our SAFE Act um, transitional licensing piece. 
So it might, I guess the future question is what's the future hold for some of the legislation and proposed rules that the CFPB has out there? Um, you know, as far as we all know, things will, that stuff will keep moving forward, but maybe uh, Mitch has some insight into that, into some of the pending issues we've been tracking and uh, whether or not this has any immediate impact or potential long-term impact on those items. Uh, so there hasn't been any definitive movement on the bills that we've been uh, watching for you. A couple of quick notes. Um, Honda data was released uh, last week, 929, like I said, it was a little over a week ago. And what that means for everybody here is it's time to go see how you stack up, right? So when the new 2015 prior year's Honda data yeah. comes out, that now gives you the opportunity to say, okay, how was my business in line with national and regional numbers? Um, so the proposed rule, comment for the TILA RESPA integrated amendments, that actually ends tomorrow. So I haven't seen, we checked this morning, didn't see the MBA's comments in there. Again, 98% of the comments are from the title industry that are totally off target. And so they're going to clear those out pretty quick when they look at this rule. And, you know, as an industry, I'm surprised that people didn't take the opportunity to respond to other issues or at least weigh in on uh, these dealer changes. Because certainly in the proposed rule, the CFPB didn't address some of the gaps that are real um, on the street level for Kila Respa. You know, they address some of the highlights. So I, I guess, should we take it that the industry is perfectly happy or are they going to complain once it actually <laughs> passes? <laughs> Like last time, right? <laughs> How many times did we say comment, 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 and then after it's all done and said, then everybody starts complaining. So um, right yep. now, folks, it looks like you got 24 hours to uh, get your voice to be heard on that particular issue. Uh, so uh, one last thing, the uh, financial standards, Section 342 of the Dodd-Frank, it actually was published, uh, I think, about a month ago. This is the uh, diversity inclusion self-assessment, um, and those practices have to be the next thing. Let's hear what Mitch has to say on CFPB, but uh, folks really do need to look at this self-assessment tool. Um, MBA has this tool, and put that, that together with the FDIC FAQs and make sure you've got your diversity self-assessment in place for 2016. So um, that's my report, Dave, and I'll turn it back to Good you. Job. Good job, Alice. Appreciate it so much. I can't wait to get into the segment with Mitch. There's a lot of questions I know you're going to have for him, so we'll all be diving into that. We're going to be right back, folks, right after this brief break. If you have questions about mortgage regulations, Indicom Mortgage U has free answers. If you need ideas about how to reinvent your organization, Indicom Mortgage U will share great ideas. When you need help at any step of the loan process, give us a call or send an email. The Indicom team of experts have been helping mortgage players from origination through servicing for over 30 years. Your success is our focus. Whether it's a quick question or long-term support, portfolio, conventional, or government lending, it's a competitive market. So let Indicom Mortgage U give you the edge. Yeah, and they will give you an edge. So I encourage you to get a hold of Alice and her team. Great job, Alice. Appreciate it. By the way, we get the, one of the joys of having this, we get to connect with clients and listeners across the town. We heard from Hometown Lenders, which has been a client that Andy and I have had and shared together in times past. And Sean Miller called me and said, hey, we're looking for some to hire some loan originators and branch managers and trainees and branch managers across the nation. So they are serious about doubling their biz. If you want to find out more, get a hold of Sean Miller at 888-606-8066. Or you can go to their website, hometownbranch.com. Check it out. Sean Miller, it's great to hear from you. Always appreciate your kind comments about the radio program. 
good to always hear about it. Let's run over to Sam Garcia, get a quick update, and then we're going to get over to the Profit Doctor. So let's start off with Sam Garcia. Good to have you with us, Sam. I just realized I hadn't turned on your microphone. That would help if I did that. There you are, Sam. Good to have you with us, friend. Here I am. Here I am. Thanks for having me on, Dave. Here I am. Here I am. <laughs> you know, uh, like uh, Paul was saying, uh, it's, a quarter, it's a quarterly earnings season. Uh, so far, yeah. we've covered Bank of America, PNC, City, Chase, Wells Fargo, uh, and First Republic among the publicly reported banks. And the one I kind of I wanted to mention or talk about a little bit here is Wells Fargo. Um, on Friday, they reported their third quarter originations were up 11% from the second quarter to $70 billion. Um, their business jumped by more than a quarter from a year earlier. And uh, what was interesting in the report was that the uh, it indicated that as a result of the new cross-selling restrictions implemented as a result of the uh, uh, fraudulent account scandal. Mortgage referrals from its retail banking uh, division tumbled 24% from August to September, and that those referrals accounted for about 10% of this year's business. So they've already taken actually a little bit of a hit uh, as a result of that scandal in the mortgage business, even though it really didn't, uh, you know, wasn't involving uh, the mortgage people there. Um, and of course, last week. Uh, you know, with that report, that was the first quarterly earnings under the new CEO, Tim Sloan. Um, he was promoted from his job as CFO after John Stump resigned as chairman and CEO in the wake of that scandal. Uh, Stump had been with the company since 1982 when it was Norwest Bank, and Norwest acquired Wells Fargo in 1998. And, his, you know, he started there as in loan administration and ascended to the CEO uh, and chairman role. So uh, interesting story, long tenure, but uh, that uh, time is over for him over there. Um, data from CoreLogic indicates that the 90-day mortgage delinquency rate was 2.8% in August, and that turned out to be the lowest rate for serious mortgage delinquency since September 2007. Um, however, for completed foreclosures, as lenders you know, clear out, still you know, move some of those uh, distressed loans through their pipelines, they were 37,000 uh, in August, and that was a jump from 34,000 in July. And in fact, REO filings have been up each month since May. So uh, just keeping an eye on that. Our, our uh, mortgage market index, which is an indicator of upcoming originations, dropped 20% last week. But that decline, you know, really wasn't real significant given that we don't make any seasonal adjustments uh, for the uh, Columbus Day holiday. Um, you know, those we base that index on rate locks that are taken over at open close. Uh, and compared to the same week last year, business uh, was up by nearly a tenth. So actually on a year-over-year -year basis wow. comparing Columbus Day to Columbus Day, we're doing better. Um, I want, want to talk a little bit about uh, our mortgage employment statistics. You know, we've been tracking the number of non-bank mortgage jobs since 2002, uh, and, and that year the total was 407,000 people that were in mortgage jobs but not at banks or at credit unions. Um, that data is published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is it's part of the Department of Labor. And um, based on um, the year in total, non-bank mortgage jobs peaked in 2005 at just over 500,000 jobs. Um, we also maintain a mortgage employment index, and that tracks 
many of the hirings and layoffs, you know, by company and by state, including jobs at financial institutions. And in 2007, we saw that, um, you know, that was the year that the uh, subprime mortgage industry was wiped out. Uh, we tracked nearly 90,000 mortgage uh, layoffs uh, that year. So it was just, uh, oh. it was a killer. Uh, and, and by a year in 2007, the data uh, reported by the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, under the Bush administration indicated that non-bank mortgage employment had fallen to 370,000 versus, as I mentioned earlier, it had peaked at 500,000. And what was really interesting is that when the Obama administration took over, um, they lowered that number from 370 down to 308,000. So uh, just a change of administration made a gosh, uh, nearly uh, more than $60,000 decline in the same month's number. But uh, more recently, the BLS has reported that the non-baked total stands at less than 313000 as of August. And then, you know, including jobs at banks and credit unions, we estimate that the total is somewhere around nearly 660000 So uh, those are some of those statistics that we, we keep uh, as far as mortgages go or you know, mortgage employment. Yeah. Yeah, great and, statistics. Yeah, really and it was just, you know, again, I, it, we were so devastated that one year in 2007 as things were just falling apart fast, and that whole industry just, uh, the subprime mortgage industry just disappeared. And I think you remember that uh, I spent, uh, before I was in the news business, a good, a good part of my 20 years in the mortgage business were in subprime lending. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of us were involved in that during that time. It's not one of the brighter spots of our careers, but uh, it did implode. Sam, thanks so much. I encourage people to check out the Mortgage Daily website. It's another great resource for information, mortgagedaily.com, or get a hold of Sam at samgarcia at mortgagedaily.com, or give him a call at 214-521-1300. Sam, thanks so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us, my friend. Always Thank you, sir. Your report. You bet. Always good. Uh, let's run over to uh, let's first of all I want to get Jim Jump on here talking about the Raystar program and then we're going to get Andy Shell to give us an update on what he's seeing on out there. Uh, so Jim Jump, who is ArchMI's chief marketing officer, is going to give us a quick update on what is going on with the Raystar program. Hi David, thanks for having me on, and we're happy to be a proud sponsor of the program. And today I'd like again to talk about Raystar from Arch Mortgage Insurance. Ratestar is a revolutionary tool that allows mortgage originators to dynamically price mortgage insurance and match coverage to Archimai's most competitive rates. And that's important because it allows you to compete more effectively, qualify more borrowers, and of course close more loans. That's the power of Ratestar. Originators from around the country are letting us know just how quick and easy Ratestar is to use. And all you need is your NMLS number, and you can access Ratestar anywhere, anytime, using multiple points of entry, including most LOS systems, product and pricing engines, and through our websites at archmi.com and archmicu.com for credit unions. And of course, it's available through our mobile app for smartphones and tablets. Ratestar makes it easy to choose what type of mortgage insurance coverage your loan needs. You just touch, tap, and go. Quotes are delivered in seconds and represent our most competitive ArchMI rates based on the strength and quality of the loan application. And I have to tell you, David, getting a mortgage insurance quote has never been so powerful or so simple. And with that, I'll turn it back over to you and say thanks. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate it. So true. It's really easy to get a quote. Check it out at the conference or get a hold of your local ArchMI rep. Andy Shell, Profit Doctor, good to have you back with us. I know you've been traveling around a lot, but it's uh, your daughter graduated. You were going out there for yeah. that. So, But it's good to have you here. 
give us some pearls of wisdom on what you're seeing as it relates to things that are you could people could do to fix their ailing their bottom line. It's been pretty good. Hey, Sounds like based on the information. But uh, thanks, Dave. Appreciate being on the call on the phone. It's always yes. a pleasure to talk to you. Um, first, just one quick shameless plug: our MBA webinar is. Thursday, this Thursday and the following Thursday on hedging and then uh, hedge accounting. We've had two webinars so far. It's building to hedging and now and then next week hedge accounting. So that's Thursday the 20th and then the following Thursday the 20th. So check that out, uh, mba.org, MBA education. So that's always fun. Well, Dave, there's all kinds of interesting things going on. Uh, A quick note to Sam's comment about 2007. Uh, you know, we, we we see turmoil and we experience fear, and the turmoil drives change, and we have a an automatic reaction to that that's all almost always not positive, but that change drives benefit and it drives something new. Our company, Dave, when we first started it, came out of the 2007 crash. MBS right, started right. in May of 2007, so it's 10 years old coming up this this may and so good things happen from change so don't run from change it's it's a good thing and just like what mitch is going to talk about we're continuing to see change in our environment the mortgage lending environment is very dynamic with technology interaction technology deployment customer expectations customers say they don't want to talk to originator originator they want to do it all on their phone but then they start to get close to closing and they go oh my gosh <laughs> this is my largest financial transaction maybe i do want to talk to somebody so um i find that really interesting dave and i can't wait to talk to you more about the marketing dynamics surrounding all of that I wanted to make a quick comment, though, as we're managing our business, as we're measuring our results. We all get we all get our KPIs and we all get our financial statements. And I was just talking about this last week on the class I taught. You've got to have meaningful financial information, and, and KPIs, key performance indicators, are simply a, a reconstitution of financial information, adding uh, activity drivers to come up with with information that's more meaningful for business owners. There's usually two categories of KPIs. There's operational KPIs that look at speed and accuracy, which helps to drive efficiency. We also measure customer satisfaction. There's hundreds of them. Motivity has a whole bunch. There's financial KPIs, which would include like things like revenue on volume, which is my favorite, expense on activity, profit on various drivers. There are hundreds. Any college accountant who's had um, cost accounting understands about overhead allocation. Dave, this stuff's not rocket science. It's really not that hard to come up with KPIs. Here's the trick. You, you, you need to have them. If you don't, it's not that hard to get them, but then you got to use them, and that's the hard part. You've got to take KPIs. Yeah, exactly. You've got you've to use them to drive change. You've got to have them, and then you've got to use them, and that's where measurement drives accountability, and accountability can drive profitability, but that's where management kicks in, and this is the hardest part of having KPIs is you've got to drive change through management that leads to uh, managed behavior that drives financial benefit, and that's what management does, and that's where I see mortgage company management fail more often than not. They have the information. They don't know how to drive change using the information. So we can help. You can help. I can help. Lots of folks can help, but that's the trick. 
And I, and I tell you, Andy, you have a unique skill of taking those concepts and really bringing them to, to a client and delivering them in such a way where it's easy for them to understand. I encourage people to get a hold of Andy at MBS-team.com, Andy at mbs-team.com to learn more about how you can he can come in and help you really do that. He does an amazing job. He's been a friend, a partner, and someone I'm just valued to have on this podcast. Andy, thank you so much. And speaking of KPIs, let's run over quickly from John Maynell and get the latest KPI. One that I, I'm, I'm looking at lately is average resubmits, one of those topics. And so let's listen to John quickly. And then we've got Mitch Kider coming right up after this break. Thank you, David, very much. Great to be here, as always. And this week, we have another underwriting-focused key performance indicator, and the KPI is average resubmits per file. This single measurement can not only help lenders develop consistency in underwriting and optimize departmental processes, it can also guide business users to examine contributing tasks in processing that affect this number. KPIs in practice, and you might say by definition, are constantly on display and updated in near real time, making it much easier to pinpoint however many friction points may be combining to produce a given effect, like number of resubmissions, which can also vary by product type, another aspect that the KPI can uncover, demonstrating once again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, Dave, I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much again. So good to have uh, these guys talk with him. John Maynell does a great job, Motivity Solutions. And he brings up a great point, KPIs. There's hundreds of them. So how are you figuring it out? How are you doing it? Well, one solution is Motivity Solutions. Check them out at MotivitySolutions.com or call them at 303-721-9000. It's good to have back on the program someone I consider an a great friend. Joey originally introduced him to the podcast and to myself, and I'm just telling you, this friendship and uh, partnership has gone to dimensions that have just really been on. I, one of my favorite downloaded programs is Mitch Kiner talking about his uh, Father's Day. We had him on with his three sons talking about work-life balance. It was a great program, and if you haven't listened to that one, be sure to go back and do so. Also, we had Mitch on on April 18th talking about the upcoming uh, – well, they, in fact, the arguments had just been presented on the consumer – with the con- PHH versus con- uh, CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for those that are not a part of industry. And that audience is growing. It's amazing. But the consumer financial protection industry has had just kind of like a freewheeling run at our industry. And many questioned the, un- the constitutionality of it, how it was structured and many of those um, aspects of how that was being done. And CFPB, excuse me, PHH was the first to push back on that. Mitch Kinder was at the ground floor, at ground zero, when that first started. He has been working with PHH. He built the arguments. He really brought that case to the forefront. And at the appropriate time, when the U.S. appeals, when it was argued before the U.S. appeals, or the ruling that, that where they lost, PHH lost initially, it was appealed to the U.S. appeals court, and Mitch was instrumental in that. So we're really fortunate to have Mitch Kinder, who's the managing partner of Wiener Brodsky Kinder, a Washington, uh, D.C.-based national law firm specializing in the representation of financial institutions, residential home builders, real estate settlement agents. Mitch has over 30 years of experience practicing law and is one of our top mortgage industry experts. He uh, represents clients in investigative enforcement actions before HUD, VA, Department of Justice, Federal Trade Commission, Jenny May, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and various other state and local authorities. He does a great job, and he's a friend of the program, and we're thrilled to have him here to talk about the PHH versus CFPB case. Mitch, so good to have you back on the podcast, my friend. 
It's great to be back, David. Thank you. Let's start off. So many, first of all, you're so well known to the industry, and kudos in, uh, to you for the work you've done, and congratulations on this victory. While someone else argued that you were behind the scenes for helping and working with much of this. So let's talk about looking forward. Now that this has been ruled, this seminal rule came out and, and ruled in, uh, against the CFPB. I'm looking at the headlines, by the way. I have the um, the Wall Street Journal headline up here, and it starts off as saying the Federal Appeals Court delivers a strong rebuke. The, uh, then also we have the Housing Wire headline. It says what was once unthinkable actually happened. And then and then uh, then we look at Bloomberg's report, and it's a little survival. CFPB survives legal attack. <laughs> I saw that. I was going, Bloomberg, come on, man. That is just a wrong characterization. They have just overreached. And you talk about that. So are you, I assume this is almost a rhetorical question, but are you pleased with the court's decision, Mitch? Oh, yeah. We're very pleased with the uh, court's decision. We're really pleased that, you know, they did it in in such a well-reasoned manner. It's it's an excellent decision, and uh, how could we not be pleased with it? We waited for it for a long time. We were confident from day one uh, that we were right in this particular case. And the court vindicated PHH, and that's what's important here. Well, one thing that's interesting is it was argued before three judges, and I think this is, a, is this a five-judge panel, am I correct on that? And that all of the judges that uh, reviewed this were all Republican appointees, which really goes to you know, the appeal part of this. But let's, first of all, um, is that going to be an issue, you think, with, with the fact that it was three – was it three judges? Yeah, it's a three-judge panel. When you argue before the uh, – the United States Court of Appeals in any of the circuits, there are 12 circuits. When you argue there, it's always right. before a three-judge panel. That's correct. Okay, and, yes, there were three Republican judges on it, but, you know, the system is such that judges are randomly appointed to these particular cases. So you can't really read much of anything into that. So do you expect the Bureau to appeal? Well, you know, based on everything that I've been reading, I do expect that the uh, the Bureau is going to appeal. You know, I would hope that they wouldn't, uh, and I don't believe that their appeal is going to have very much merit to it uh, at all. Uh, but do I expect them to? Yes, I do. Yeah, okay. I well, do, and, and they have the ability, and they have the ability to do that in a number of different ways. They have 45 days in which to uh, ask for a rehearing or a hearing in banc, which means that the entire Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia would listen to the uh, to the case. Or they can go uh, and appeal to the uh, United States Supreme Court, seek cert, and uh, they have 90 days in which to seek that. So, Well, when you talked on the podcast on the April 18th, you said that was one of the things, if I recall from that podcast, listened to us here several times just recently preparing for this podcast, you said that would be the most logical place for this to be heard. But what interests... Did the Bureau, CFPB, specifically, uh, would they be seeking to protect in taking an appeal or going for an appeal? Well, well, I, you know, there are a number of things that came down in this case. There are four basic uh, holdings in this case. The first is that the structure of a single director uh, at the CFPB, who is really not accountable to anyone, could only be removed for cause by the president, but otherwise could not be removed, that that structure is unconstitutional. My guess is that's what concerns the CFPB the most. The three other rulings are very, very important as well, important to the industry. Uh, 
the three other rulings are as solid as anything you will find. Not to say that that unconstitutional ruling is not solid. It is as well. But in the three other rulings, I mean, what the court found is that PHH rights to due process was violated because the CFPB sought to punish them for something that the law clearly allowed. Uh, That's one uh, piece of it. And, And then they said, and not only that, the CFPB took... 40 years of interpretations, threw it out the door and said, we interpret this statute, RESPA Section 8 and specifically 8C2, differently. And the court said that violates due process. You cannot uh, take an action against someone that's not on notice of something's wrong. In fact, in fact, David, let me just say this. They had this great, uh, this great paragraph in there where they said, it's like walking up to a policeman on a street corner, asking him if you can cross the street, and he says, yes, go ahead and cross the street. And then when you get to the other side, he gives you a $1,000 ticket. That's, that's yeah. what the, yeah. the court said the CFPB effectively did here. If there was any confusion, you would think that would bring some clarity to it. Alice, let me toss the mic over to you. So, um, so, okay, you got through two of them. Yeah, so will the Bureau get assistance from the DOJ in connection with the appeal? Well, you know, back in 2012, uh, the DOJ and the CFPB entered into a memorandum of understanding where on matters like this and appeals, they would meet and confer and consult with each other on those things. So my answer to you is probably yes. I'm sure they're talking about it. I'm sure they're meeting about it. And the other thing that comes into play is the Solicitor General's office, which is a part of the DOJ. Solicitor General argues cases before the Supreme Court for the United States, and they argue some other appeals as well. And they always get involved if there's a constitutional issue. So will the CFPB get assistance along those particular lines? Uh, I would say probably yes. So will the Bureau adhere to the D.C. Circuit's opinion while the appeal is pending? Well, one would hope so. They should, uh, and and one would hope that fact will do that. Uh, you know, the issue that you have over here is that the CFPB seems to think, at least I deduce this from their actions, they, they seem to think that regulatory uncertainty is a good thing, and they play that game for quite some time. It's something that the industry has complained about. We want to know what we can do. We want to know what we can't do. Uh, don't just hit us up with consent orders and enforcement orders and say, and now you know. And, uh, and, and so one would hope that the CFPB will, in fact, adhere to the D.C. Circuit's opinion. Uh, I, I'll take it one step further. I think they will. I think they will, uh, pending any uh, appeal that they have uh, ongoing. But I am a little concerned about the fact that they, uh, since its inception, the CFPB has... Uh, has really ruled through regulatory uncertainty, and they seem to like it to be uncertain there. And that's because they have disdain for a lot of the practices of the industry, uh, you know, marketing agreements and things of that sort. And so they like to have that uncertainty out there to scare uh, lenders and other settlement service providers from certain practices that they don't like. That's a great point. Joe? Yeah, I was going to go there, Mitch. Um, So with this ruling, does it change advice that you might give to people in practices regarding like marketing services agreements which were uh, in most cases uh, terminated as a result of the fear from the uh, CFPB are are those things that people can get back into now 
Well, the first piece of advice is always to be extraordinarily cautious and make sure anything that you structure, you're going to structure in a way that's somewhat airtight and that is uh, is defensible. Uh, if you just go under the PHH decision itself, if you go under the Court of Appeals decision in PHH, then yes, marketing services agreements would be okay as long as, number one, real services are in fact being provided, and number two, it's the reasonable fair market value that's being paid for those services. The court is clear, even in the case where there are referrals, HC2 is an exemption that says even if there are referrals, if you are paying for the reasonable fair market value of other services that are being provided, that is acceptable, that's, that's allowed. And that's clear, and that's always been clear, quite frankly, under Section 8 of RESPA. It's just the uh, Bureau that kind of went off a, a little bit away from, uh, away from that. So, I mean, if you're giving advice, you know, if someone's going to ask you if it's absolutely airtight and properly structured on marketing services, okay, the answer is yes. But, again, one has to exercise some caution. Uh, the decision just came out. The CFPB does have the ability to appeal these things, and there's a lot that happens around marketing service agreements and lead service agreements and other things of that sort as well. So be cautious before you just go ahead and jump right into these things. Yeah. Well, how about the Lighthouse uh, consent order? That was a, a title company that got fined a couple hundred thousand dollars for you know, a marketing services type arrangement. Does this change anything about that uh the, the guidance that came from that? Sure. It changes a lot about the guidance that came from that. I mean, it was Lighthouse that uh, first came out with this concept that said that even if you're paying for services, uh, the mere fact that you gave uh, someone a contract to provide marketing services for you is a thing of value. And therefore, if they're referring business to you and you gave them this thing of value, you have a Section 8 RESPA violation. That's what Lighthouse was all about. Well, the court addressed that head-on, and the court said they were deeply troubled by those particular arguments and, uh, and said that the statute was absolutely clear. That contra a contract uh, to provide services is not a thing of value when you're looking to see whether or not someone is getting paid for a referral. So, yes. This changes that lighthouse determination uh, a great deal. It's not going to have an impact on the consent order itself that lighthouse entered into. But what the CFPB has done is uh, issued these consent orders, these enforcement orders, and then told the industry you're com you're, you you know you're practicing malpractice in compliance unless you follow those things. Well, this case tells you no, that's not right. You have to, in fact, look and go through notice and comment rulemaking, and it's got to be constitutional, and you can't put out a rule even that's contrary to the plain language of the statute itself. So this case changes a lot about what Lighthouse uh, title had done and what it says. Absolutely. Wow, Mitch, so much amazing stuff. It's Andy. Thanks for being on Licking on Lending. I have a couple of questions as well. And so in listening to you, it's just like, you know, wow, the, the Goliath, uh, the David B. Goliath kind of thing. And so so what about all the other deals? What about lead agreements and joint marketing and desk rentals? And should we rethink this is, is, as long as they're fair value-based? is Are they okay? Or what do you think? Well, I think the court's pretty clear over here, and that is that HC2 says that you can pay bona fide 
compensation or salaries for services that are rendered, and you can pay fair market value for goods or facilities that are being provided. And as long as you structure your arrangements along those particular lines, as long as you make sure the services really are being provided or the goods and facilities really are being provided, and as long as you make sure that, in fact, you're paying reasonable fair market value, that, yes, you can do these types of things. And, and this is very, uh, a, a big change from the CFPB's position that had been taken prior to this case. Well, it's, it's great to see some level of common sense coming back. One of your partners, a good friend of mine, Troy Garris, has been telling me they're wrong, they're wrong. Someday you're going to see they're wrong. And it's exciting to see that you got to lead the charge for that to happen. So as you, as you look at this now, and so as we, as we look at, you know, election coming up soon and, and there's all the politics that come into play, there's a Forbes article that just came out that talks about CFEB picked the wrong fight, so are they going to go pick another fight? And, and so the fact that Dave mentioned earlier at the start of the show that there were um, three judges, and I think all three were Republican, uh, do you think that, that the composition of the panel – would have uh, or drove the decision, or will it be held up under review because it was three Republicans? Or is there any politics we need to read into this? There was no politics in the decision that was rendered by these judges. Uh, the unfortunate situation of where we are in this country today politically is when one group disagrees with what's issued by some judges, and, and recognize this is the second highest court right below the Supreme Court of the United States. When one group disagrees, they come out and they yell and they cry that it's political, and that's all that it is. Uh, and, you know, both sides of the party, the right, the left, the Democrats, the Republicans, uh, were, they're all guilty of doing that, and to a certain extent in this particular matter, they're all guilty uh, of doing that as well. I will tell you, these, these three judges bent over backwards to think this case through as, as, as well as anything I have ever seen. And I've been litigating cases for a period of 35 years. This is a 110-page, well-reasoned decision. And I, I actually think they took into account many of the arguments that opponents to, uh, to this uh, had made. And so I don't believe there was any politics at all. And, in fact, I, I'm certain there was no politics that was involved in the decision that was made in this particular case. And I think it's time that people stop throwing those things out there because it's actually offensive and it undermines our judicial system. Well, given the analogy you gave, and, and Troy's mentioned something similar, that the police officer says, go ahead and cross the street, and you cross and get the ticket. That's a great analogy, and it's so clear for the novice to understand the point. So it, it kind of begs the question still, well, why would they appeal if it's so egregious in the behavior that they've implemented? Um, uh, that, that's not on our, our list of questions. It's just a thought I've had. Well, well I mean, the, the answer to that is, listen, the ball is in their court. It's their choice as to whether they appeal or not to appeal. I don't like to guess as to what their underlying reasons are, but I will tell you, you know, having, having litigated this case all through, and yes, I was involved in the appeal, uh, very heavily involved in, in, in orchestrating this appeal as well, having litigated this case all the way through, uh, you know, I, my conclusion is 
they want to be completely independent. They don't want to be accountable. They don't want to have to answer to the President of the United States, which, which to me, I can't understand, in all honesty. I can't understand that at all. Yeah. You know, we, we were created by the Constitution to have three branches of government, and all were accountable, and there were checks and balances. This is not part of the three branches of government. We've never had an independent agency created quite like this one with a single director not accountable to anyone, only could be removed uh, for cause. And it would seem to me that on any side of the political spectrum, you would view that as being dangerous. You would want better checks and balances in that particular system. Let's move over to Paul Mallow's question that he sent me. He said, what does this mean for FHFA, which has a similar structure? Not exactly the same, but a similar structure. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? So, so Paul, that is, that, is, that is actually a great question. And, you know, just before the argument, after the case was briefed in the, uh, for the appellate court, and just before the argument itself, the court went and asked – the CFPB to give them a list of any other agencies that look anything like this. And they were hard-pressed to come up with any type of a list. And they came up with a list of three, two of which are very different, and in fact, their constitutionality is being challenged. One is Social Security. Uh, They went to a single director system. But the issue with Social Security is they can't take uh, legal actions against, uh, you know, citizens and, and individuals. So they're not exercising that type of executive power. Yeah. One was a special uh, prosecutor, and, and that was challenged. And, in fact, we had, uh, you know, we've had presidents in the past, including, uh, including Bill Clinton, who said that that, in fact, created constitutional issues. And the third one was FHFA. And the court addressed it, and they said, look, we look at FHFA – it doesn't provide any precedent for this case at all because it is a contemporary to the CFPB. Uh, the, the manner in which FHFA is structured today uh, was structured in 2008. And, and the court says, you know, that it raises some of the very same questions. So those questions are there, and those questions may be raised by others at some point in time. I think the basic fundamental analysis really is going to come down to whether or not any type of an entity that's structured like the CFPB, whether or not it possesses unilateral authority to bring law enforcement actions against private citizens, because that really is, as the court says, that is the core of executive power, and as the court says, that's the primary threat to individual liberty that's posed by executive power, and that's where you really need to have accountability and checks and balances. And so if anything's going to be analyzed, I think it's going to be analyzed along those particular lines. Good. It's a really good point. I'm looking at the time, and we're just about out of time as we wrap up this interview. It's the same question we asked, or similar question we asked at the last interview in April. We've got the election coming up, uh, and I'm wondering, will the outcome of this election have any bearing on this case uh, or on the Bureau? Do you see that election, whether it's a... Trump or Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton in the White House? So I think there are two things. I, I don't think the outcome of this election is going to have any bearing on the case itself. The case is there. There's a great uh, decision that's been rendered. Uh, and, you know, we'll see what happens if there are any appeals in this particular matter. Will the Bureau look different, uh, you know, if, uh, if there's a Trump 
over a Hillary Clinton? Well, if you listen to a lot of the things that Trump has been saying, he doesn't like regulations, and he said he's going to abolish regulations. I haven't heard him say anything directly about the CFPB itself. So I would imagine it would look a little different under, uh, you know, in the unlikely event you have a Trump victory. Uh, I, I imagine it would look a little different, uh, but certainly not if Hillary is the president. Yeah, that's mine. I think it's more of the same if we have uh, Hillary as the president. Trump, we don't know because there's not been a lot said. He's been focusing. It's quite an interesting election, to put it mildly. But, Mitch, thank you so much for coming on and giving us clarity about this. For you listeners that are not familiar with Mitch Kyder, you've got to get to know him. If you have any issues that you're litigating at all, you need to get a hold of Mitch. He is a champion for our industry, a fierce warrior, and probably one of the most intense competitors out there. And I if I'm going to have a battle like this, I want I want to have Mitch on my team. Mitch, for those that want to reach out to you and uh, talk about their legal matters with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, you can get me on my email, kiter at thewbkfirm.com. So it's K-I-D-E-R at thewbkfirm.com. Or you can call me on my number. It's uh, 202-557-3511. And, and he Appreciate does a great it, job. Dave. Kathleen? Yeah, Prince, thank you so much. Kathleen's his assistant. If he doesn't, he answers his phone, folks. He actually answers his phone. And But if he's not and he's busy, Kathleen will do it. Uh, will take care of it and get your information. Really a great team with you and Kathleen. Mitch, thank you so much for coming on the program, being here with us. Really appreciate it very much. Folks, we have had Mitch Kider with us of the WBK firm. I encourage you to forward this particular podcast out to all your associates. It's a very important podcast, very far-reaching of consequences of this. We're excited to have uh, this be out in front of everybody. On taking a look at the markets, looking at MBS quote line, look at this. We're back up, and it looks like we've fully required, re- recovered Joe uh, on what we lost. So it's um, uh, what we lost. Yeah, we're up back. six and a half now. Yeah. Yeah, it's good, good stuff. Andy, Joe, Alice, Mitch, everybody, uh, Sam, and Paul, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Look forward to having you back next week. We will be in the broadcasting live from the DNH booth. We've got Ted Tozier stopping by the both booth. Also, we're going to have a number of other celebrities swinging by talking to us. Good to see you. Hope to see you there. This is David Lickett over and out. See you in Boston, everybody. This has been Lincoln on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lincoln of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week and thank you for listening.